This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Brexit. 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 No, it's not a G. Brexit. It's not the word Brexit. egg. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 24th, 2019, the Great Blotch Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Howdy, Emily. Hello, hello. And John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is in New York City. Hello, John. Hi. On this week's show, the shutdown gets even worse. The State of the Union is off. We will dig into that. Then, what to make of the latest crop of would-be Democratic nominees for president, especially Kamala Harris. And then the tragedy, the horror, the insanity that is Brexit. We will be joined by Tanya Gold, a British journalist, to wallow in all of that. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And before we get started, two, we have two live show announcements. So you may remember that on Wednesday, March 27th, at the Lincoln Theater here in Washington, D.C., we will be doing a live show, which will also be a special promotion for Emily's new book, Charged, and a chance for you to hear Emily talk about that book, a chance for us to do a regular show. Emily will talk about the book and also uh, will sign and it. You and you can think, get a book with your ticket at a discount. So please go to slate.com slash live for information and tickets for that show. And then we're going to do another you live You will also show get a pot pie. Really? John's going to bake all the pot pies, actually. They're going to be personalized and wrapped in little bits of tinfoil. I hate pot pie. It's weird. Mm. I like pie, but I hate pot pie. You, what do you I, define as pot pie? You like pies and you like pots, and yet you are not into the pot pie. You mean you don't like meat pies? What's the difference? Well, there's only the only pot pie is chicken, right? Are there other kinds of pot pie? I, I just chicken pot pie repels me. Well, you don't me. like chicken. Right, but chicken pot pie is particularly repellent. It's so slimy. Okay. There must be anyway. other kinds because if there was only one kind of pot pie, chicken pot pie would be redundant. It would be like saying right. ATM machine, which is right. automatic teller machine like machine. Beef, beef pot pie. Right like, not. Why not? Why not? There are, I'm sure there are other such pies. In any case, there's another live show that we're going to do Friday, April 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia as part of the Tom Tom Festival. Tom Tom is the, the big festival at small cities. So you can get tickets for that show at slate.com slash live. So that's April 12th in Charlottesville and March 27th in D.C. Hope to see you at one or both of those shows. The shutdown, day 35, day 34, something like that, uh, is on, on Thursday. The Senate is preparing to vote on two potential bills to theoretically end the shutdown, one of which is the president's proposal, which would have funding for the wall and some uh, alleged uh, relief on DACA and temporary protected status, which is completely bogus relief, but we can talk about that. And then there's a democratic bill that would basically just fund the government and uh, have also some extra disaster relief in there. And incidentally, the thing I just cottoned onto, 
all of these bills to to fund the government just take us to February 8th, which is around the corner, which is basically <laughs> yeah, I really days away. don't understand why they chose that date. John, can you explain that? It just no, seems like I have no idea. No, I'm so I feel so horrible. But I have no I, I have no idea. I don't I haven't been able to catch up to that. I feel like it was the date three weeks, four weeks ago when the shutdown started and that it should have moved forward and has not. It's really incredible. So the other news this week, of course, is that President Trump wanted to deliver his State of the Union. He was hoping to deliver it on January 29th, next Tuesday in the House chamber. Nancy Pelosi told him to buzz off. She's saying not not in my house as long as the shutdown is going on. Trump got very angry. He called it a great blotch on the nation that that uh, Speaker Pelosi wouldn't have him there and raged and fomented. And then on Wednesday night, basically backed down and said, OK, fine, I won't do it until after the shutdown. John, uh, so that it, it seems like a nice victory for Pelosi that she understands that Trump desperately wants the credibility, the prestige of giving an address in the chamber and that she won't give it to him. Should he give the State of the Union during a shutdown? Well, I'm I'm fascinated by the by the fact that he hasn't given one, uh, or or has decided not to give one. They were contemplating a number of different options, including having a sort of rally type thing, and and a lot of conservatives were suggesting doing one in a you know from a factory floor, surrounded by workers, or do all kinds of stage managing. And so I'm interested in the calculation. You could you could infer calculation based on the old rules of politics, um, and the old rules of politics would have told you that um, what he sees is that his approval rating is um, is going down. Seventy one percent of uh, voters in the CBS poll this week, uh, sorry, seventy one percent of Americans said the building wall along the border was not worth shutting the government down. Sixty one percent said the border can be secured without building a wall. The president's, if you average his approval ratings, his approval ratings are at, um, I think, near their basement. Um, maybe his basement was thirty four. They're at thirty seven. Dis- uh, thirty seven approve, fifty seven disapprove. His average used to be. 41 approved, 51 disapproved. So things have gotten worse, and they've gotten worse since he held his first Oval Office address. I know I mentioned this last week, but it's worth mentioning again. I'm not so sure at a State of the Union address and the stage and all of the, the hoopla accorded to a president would, not, would move his numbers. I mean, he, get, he, he, he fired one of the precious bullets a president has in his uh, rhetorical revolver, if that metaphor hangs together. Um, I liked that. We, which is a which is an Oval Office address, and his numbers went down. So, um, uh, so, but because this president operates by a whole uh, um, set of rules that seem to be made up as he goes along. Although having said this, th- this feels familiar, which is he gets in a big fight and hopes that by creating such chaos, the other side capitulates. So that actually does seem familiar and not made up. But anyway, I, it's not clear why they decided not to. Uh, hold a State of the Union somewhere else. So what do we make of this latest possibility from the Democrats of passing a bill with the $5.7 billion but saying you can't use it for a wall? Like, is that uh, the kind of concession that could end this stupid thing? The so-called smart wall. Um, yeah. yeah whatever it's, that, it seemed like, to me, well, it basically means drones and electronic fencing and uh, – Basically, what people who study the border say is a more effective way to cover 
these areas. Um, and frankly, in a negotiation, they would say smart wall. And uh, if this were a sort of old-fashioned, somewhat good faith negotiation, a Republican of the Mitch McConnell sort would say, all right, look, we need to call something a wall. So can you give us a little something we can call a wall? 90% of this will be this smart border thing, but we need a little something here so so the president who you know doesn't have to completely look like he got spanked completely on this. Ha- but so much bad blood has has uh, built up or whatever it, whatever bad blood does that you, we're not in uh, that situation, I don't think. And development Tuesday was that you had Republicans, Cory Gardner and Susan Collins, say they were going to vote in the Senate with the Democrats to just open the government back up again. So that only brings to 51 the number of people who would like to open the government back up again. And presumably you'd have, a, you'd have Republicans filibuster. Uh, so you'd need to get to 60. But I think that's right. Uh, so... Also, Emily, just that $5.7 billion. So the, the problem with this, this is a hostage taking effectively. Trump, there was effectively essentially a deal to reopen or to have the government not shut down, which Trump blew up at the last minute because he got pushback from conservative media that said, no, no, you need to demand the wall. And so he's, he's not engaging in good faith negotiations. He's not offering anything meaningful. The deal that he's offered on DACA and temporary protected status is insulting and vicious and in no sense is a, you know, improve the livelihood or the security or the position of the people under TPS or under DACA. And, and it has and, these, this other provision and, in it to make oh, it these much poison harder pills. to get asylum. Yeah, it's got, Steve, got Stephen Miller's dirty little hands all over. But the, but the point I wanted to make about this is just that if he holds the country hostage now and he gets basically what he wants, even if it's, even if it's a, like a fig leaf basically what he wants – he will do it again around the debt ceiling. He will do it again and again. And he he can't – I think the Democrats are right to think they cannot concede anything meaningful to him uh, without like either a huge give from him um, – without a huge give from him. He is, he's too dangerous and he will do it again. That's not a position the country can afford to be in. And the Democrats can't – they can't capitulate to, to a hostage taker. Can can one of the two of you, for the purposes of our uh, listeners, explain why the quote unquote compromise wasn't really a compromise in any traditional sense? Because I think there are a lot of people who have read that but don't understand what it is about the, the technicalities, the fact that basically uh, Donald Trump was trying to take away uh, protection for the dreamers and is now saying this thing I've been trying to take away that the Supreme Court – decided not to review recently, uh, I'll let you have for three years, but I'll change the status of what it means to be protected, shrink it, and I'll also change the asylum rules as well. Um, Is that roughly why it's such a bad deal? Yeah, I mean, three years of protection for the dreamers in a much shrunken, narrowed state when the, when the order to, you know, begin potentially detaining and deporting them is stayed, like, is not in effect because of the courts, that is, like, that's not very much. It's, like, nothing, effectively. Um, and then when you add in the changes they want to make to asylum law, which are dramatic and would really, really shrink the number of people who qualify for asylum, what you're looking at is the opposite of the kind of comprehensive immigration reform that both Democrats and Republicans have talked about embracing and almost passed several years ago. You're talking about something that 
has, yes, there would be this temporary protection for some dreamers. But in the scope of the of the kinds of changes to immigration policy that have been um, talked about and almost passed previously, this is like very crabbed and very restrictionist. So I think for the Democrats, it looks like, are you kidding me? It's the opposite of the big give that David just outlined. It also has very bad changes to the TPS program, where yes. where it would the for temporary protected status, these folks who've come from nine countries that have been granted the right to be here because of bad conditions in their homeland, and th- this would really make it very very hard for most of them to stay, and even harder for them to work. Those who could stay to work, and it just seems vindictive. Again, it's it's there is not a compromise in there. It's a it's pretending to be a compromise, but it's not offering anything that Democrats actually want. There's a there was a very good David Leonhardt column about the shutdown and the resistance. And and Leonhardt's point, which which I hadn't really thought about, was it's astonishing there haven't been mass protests about the shutdown. We have uh, you know, low attendance by TSA workers and IRS workers, which is gumming up the works at airports and at the IRS, but there has not been a mass demonstration in the street. There hasn't been a day where everybody went out on all federal workers, just sort of had a sick out or a, a workout where they struck, even though that's illegal. Be, be, but there's this there's just something astonishing happening to a million American workers and their families and the um, you know hundreds of thousands of other contractors, and yet there isn't a, a swelling up in the street and in the public that this is an outrage. And I wonder whether you guys think that that is coming, whether that's, it's just, you know, this is not the kind of issue that provokes a mass protest. What do you think, Emily? I think we're talking about a group of workers who are not usually like at the vanguard, right? I mean, these are federal employees. They work for the federal government. It's a strange position for them to be cast in as like labor activists. And so I imagine that it's not easy to organize them. As this goes on, though, what I keep wondering about is the kind of like instant social media activism that we saw in Arizona, for example, among teachers or in West Virginia when there was a teacher strike. Because you would think that there would just be some moment where people um, lose it and a kind of groundswell of support for the kinds of demonstrations and protests you're talking about. I also think, though, the rules against federal employees striking, people are taking really seriously. And it just is proving – I mean, obviously, it just hasn't happened yet. Um, So those barriers seem difficult to surmount. It does seem like something like that, especially at the airports, could have an enormous impact. David's point was both about what the specific federal workers should do, but then also what people should do in their name, the outrage people should feel – in their name, yes. right? Um, what I wonder about that is whether they feel like whether it would really do anything to to change the mind of the one person who's running the show here because the because Mitch McConnell had a deal he put together with Paul Ryan to keep the government open back in December when Ryan was still Speaker of the House. And as you mentioned, David, the president reversed when he was, was under pressure from people like Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh. If that's the – if pleasing Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh is the bar, uh, then – then marches in the streets, people might feel it might not be that effective. But when you look at the stories of the people who are affected by this, I mean, they are heartbreaking. The people, you know, I mean, so we know that 80 percent of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. But you have people who are there was a woman we had uh, on the show today who has a dollar and six cents left in her bank account. She's missed two paychecks. So that means she's gone a month without without money. 
So then you know, these poor IRS agents, the 30,000 that were called in to process refunds, those are the lowest paid or some of the lowest paid IRS yep. employees. I think they make between twenty one dollars and $54,000 a year. So yeah. to yeah. drive themselves to work and pay, even though gas is relatively inexpensive, to go in and not get paid and do, your, do their job is more than they can afford. They have secretaries carrying around pepper spray at prisons because uh, prison guards aren't showing up. 10%, as you said, of the TSA agents are out. The FBI Agents Association said national security has been threatened. They made it sound like national security is far more threatened now as a result of the shutdown than any of the reasons the president gave, uh, which national security experts said were not as dire as he said in making his case for the wall. The pilots, uh, flight attendants, and and, um, air traffic controllers put out a statement yesterday saying it's extremely dangerous to fly now. And so I wonder if the actual stories of pain for the 800,000 workers plus the general feeling of of lack of safety might change what Leonhardt was writing about. John, I want to go back to something you said about this question of changing one person's mind, meaning, of course, President Trump. I mean, there also are all the Republicans, particularly in the Senate, who are enabling him. And I do Mm -hmm. wonder if protests and demonstrations and a sense of unrest would affect those people. And I also just feel like it's important to remember that Trump can't actually do all of this by himself. That's an excellent point. Well, he can he can do all this by himself, which is to say he can keep he can veto anything that comes to him. So But really, um, if the Republicans deserted him, don't you think that would change the political calculus? Right. Um, I don't. Yes, probably. But but you you've made the, the better point. And I I sort of embedded in my in my answer the the key thing to focus on here, which is that that Mitch McConnell is essentially keeping the president from having to mess with this, you know, or face um, Mitch McConnell and other Republicans who are sticking with the president on this, even though they um, it politically seems to be going in the wrong direction. So it's a it's a joint effort. It's not just the president. But I think um, I guess what I was trying to do in that answer was channel uh, what people might think in terms of um, uh, at the end of the day, it's the president plus the the adhesion to him by his own party. Just one other thing that I think is worth keeping in mind here is that um, you know, Laura Trump uh, was uh, quoted this week as saying, listen, it's not fair to you and we all get that. She's talking about the federal workers. But this is much bigger than any one person. It's a little bit of pain, but it's going to be for the future of our country. So I think I, I was Thanks. trying to figure out whether that's – I don't think that's a gaffe either in the old sense or in the Kinsley sense. I think that is actually the president's position. And I think that's worth keeping in mind when you think about I – mean, the president chose to take this route and that this – this pain is the result of of a of a conscious set of priorities but, he set. Well, but John, one let that me push the country on that does not share, according to what, the poll numbers, right? Oh God, and no, all, all, no, no but also yeah. that he also, John, I don't think it's based on a belief, an actual, you know, an informed belief based on evidence that this policy is effective. I think it's based on a belief that this is a rhetorical position he took, and he refuses to bend or lose. He just won't, quote, lose on it. So it, it may be true that he he comes up with excuses, which says, oh, this is going to improve security. It's going to you know, prevent crime or whatever. Those aren't those happen to be false. Those are lies. What is manifestly driving him is the is the fixation on not losing rather well, than th- that's fine. Uh, a, a, po- that, that's, a policy outcome that he wants. Well, fine. I, I guess my point is that there is um, in thinking this through this is a conscious choice for whatever the motivation. It's not just two people who can't agree to something. It's the president has taken a position um, and, ch- and these consequences are the result of that position that he has taken. 
The other thing is it goes back to your point earlier about why it's so hard to negotiate because we're not really talking about a framework of negotiation. We're talking about this like cemented, as David said, you know, self-interested position and that and then the mounting belief among Democrats that giving into it is only going to cause more of this down the road. What's weird, what's funny actually, not funny in any ha-ha way, is that I, I know there are some Democrats who believe that a war, a wall is intrinsically immoral, but I don't think they actually believe that. The, the wall is not immoral. It's a stupid public policy, but it's not in itself immoral. It's – and so – Wait a second. Position- I challenge that. I mean I think the idea that like there are some barriers and fencing somewhere on the border, we already have that. So if that's what you mean, then of course, sure. But the wall from sea to sea, this like great barrier that's going to wall off Mexico and Latin America from the United States, I think you can have a valid position that the symbolic power of that kind of wall is immoral. Uh, Although he's now – this week he said he's not talking about a wall from Susan. I know. But like when – but I think it's also fair to say that that is – well, I mean you can ask a Democrat who takes that position what they're speaking of exactly. But I do think there is a question of morality in the notion of just like this huge symbolic no enter sign. No. It's a – it's a really bad well, idea. It's it, a really bad idea. It is a, it's a waste of time and money. It will violate, you know, people's private property rights. And it's 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 an incredibly stupid piece of public policy. But to me what's immoral is is it basically yeah. treating the human beings who wish to cross into this country as subhuman, as not like yes. us. And to when they get into the country to depriving them of rights and of, of the dignity of life in a way and of dignity of freedom in a way that is, is offensive to, to all notions of, of uh, what a just and free society should do. That's immoral. The, the wall itself oh. is bad public policy and it, we shouldn't spend time on it. But it's not the, the – the, it, it, I would give him that wall in a second if – th- that could be traded away. I, you can't trade away putting kids in cages. That can't be traded away. Yeah, you're talking about the difference between wall just by itself as a wall and a wall as a manifestation of Donald Trump's entire worldview about immigration. And I guess I become. think at this point you can't disentangle them or at least like right. it's very, very difficult because the Correct. rhetoric of the wall stands Although, for all the bad things you just said. Although right. now that they're talking about a smart wall, they are, in fact, trying to disentangle them. I mean, yeah, Democrats they're trying, are basically but trying I'm to skeptical say, about that. Absolutely. And, yeah. And there are plenty of Democrats who do believe in making it harder to cross in places that are not approved for, for immigration. There is support for that within, within the party. It's just whether this, whether this is a huge misapplication of energy and a bad policy move because the wall itself is just not the most effective way to achieve This is goal. the dumbest fight ever. When you really think about it on how much agreement there is, it just is infuriating that the government could be shut down, that all of these, you know, federal workers with all of those collateral consequences like it's continuing for so long over something so solvable and dumb. Let's leave it there with those wise words from the Baz. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. And I know you've been waiting. There's been a huge buildup just in time for the Australian Open Finals. We're going to have the, the much-anticipated discussion about how to close in sports. Emily 
is worried that she's a choker. And we're going to Emily knows out. she's a choker, actually. We're going to figure really out how to But close, I won't be anymore after close. we – we're going to fix – we're going to have my sports psychology session that I've wanted for so low these many years. You would have to pay $500 for a session with a sports psychologist and you're going to get it. <laughs> and Slate Plus today for just $35. Go to <laughs> slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Another week, another 117 candidates announcing their run for the Democratic nomination for president. Kamala Harris, Kristen Gillibrand, and Pete Buttigieg. The general consensus being that Harris... The senator from California, the former state attorney general and prosecutor there, is one of the prospective frontrunners. Gillibrand is kind of a wild card, and Buttigieg is a long shot. So, Emily, you are somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about Kamala Harris. Why is she a potentially strong candidate? What makes her someone that people think might have a chance to win the nomination and, and even be president? Well, she has won election three times statewide in California, um, has a message about working families and trying to help them that I think she hopes is going to resonate. She has a lot of respect and admiration from various other Democratic politicians, including Barack Obama, for example. We don't know how she's going to do on the campaign trail. She's never had a moment of like super charisma on a big stage. I don't know if that's the right test. It's a kind of Obama-like test, but she hasn't proved that she can pass that. We did see her be very effective in various moments in the Senate in questioning different Trump nominees. And I think in that arena, her kind of background as a prosecutor served her well. She seemed like she was asking smart questions. Although, caveat here, there's this weird moment in the Kavanaugh hearings where she like asked these questions that seemed like they were going to have some payoff and then they didn't. But in general, I think in the Senate, she has seemed like you know, kind of forthright um, spokesperson for liberal causes. Then she also has these moderating parts of her background that come from being both the San Francisco district attorney and the California attorney general. So, for example, when Chris Hayes on his show said, are you in favor? What do you think about abolishing ICE? She said no. And then she started that answer by saying as a prosecutor. So she 
has been using that law enforcement background to kind of present herself in a more moderate way. And then there's this interesting criticism of her law enforcement background from the left that maybe we should get into because I think she has not sufficiently reckoned with the degree to which the criminal justice reform movement to end mass incarceration has really swelled and moved from the positions that she took as DA, but especially as attorney general. So actually, John, let's dig into that. So Harris was a prosecutor at a time when the left is really fired up by criminal justice reform, as Emily was saying. And once upon a time, being a prosecutor was kind of the dream job on a Democratic Mm -hmm. resume, conferred toughness that would legitimize this candidate for Republicans and for independents. And especially for women, David, can we just Mm -hmm. can I just pause there? Because I feel like that's an important part of this. Like there are a bunch of women in the Senate with law enforcement backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Yes. So now that the now now that the, the the stakes have changed, now that a people tend to be fighting for their partisans, not necessarily fighting for the independents, and b that the Democratic Party is so galvanized around criminal justice reform because, for example, of Emily Bazelon's new book, Charged, that people have yeah, read it. Yeah, that's the whole thing. And they're My fired up about it. Um, <laughs> no, I just was na- lucky that I showed up to to report on that. So, but so is being is is that a fatal flaw for Harris that she's a prosecutor? I don't know because, well, I don't know. So because what are we asking when we're asking this? Um, and what are we seeking to find in in, in her background? Because I, I think it actually goes back to Emily's question, which is, um, you know, what is the standard that's going to settle on this race on the Democratic side that's going to allow, um, you know, a candidate to come forward? You'll remember in 2004, the standard was who makes the blood run in the in the in the base of the party. And that was Howard Dean. And then suddenly uh, with about two weeks to go before the Iowa caucuses, people started to think, well, now he's got to go up against a commander in chief and it's a time of war. And so we need a candidate. Uh, and then there were some strategic decisions that Gephardt and Dean made that allowed John Kerry to come a- and rise. So the standard shifted in terms of what the Democratic Party decided they needed for a general election candidate. And I think that's always the case in campaigns. I think it's going to be super the case now because you have a president who has broken basically every rule except answering to the name of president, both in the way he ran for the office. And and can I just take a brief moment and mention that this week we learned that the president lied repeatedly about engaging in business with Russia while he was a candidate for right up until the election. We now learned from his lawyer that that deal for Trump Tower Moscow was ongoing, that there were plans for it. There was a picture of Trump Tower and what it was going to look like and where it was going to be and how big it was relative to other big buildings. This was going on throughout his campaign. He lied about it repeatedly about whether he had any interests or business dealings with Russia when he was campaigning. That's a huge development. So I just can't let the week end without noting that and how important that is. And that's not something yet to come out of the Mueller. That's proof. That's done. We know that. That is locked in. And the, my point is we that's just one of the many ways in which the president changed and has scrambled the standards and and – and and I can imagine a Democrat saying, if if you were to challenge a Democratic candidate by saying, well, you've got this issue, they would say, well, look at the guy in the Oval Office. He's got all these other issues. And it would be a way to kind of dance out of whatever standard analysts and voters would seek to put on candidates. So that's a really long way of, of I guess what I would ask Emily is to, is what are people looking for in Harris's 
background. Was she the last of a, of what you described in the Democratic Party that some people associate even with Bill Clinton when he ran to kind of position the party as a kind of more centrist party in the wake of Carter and Dukakis, one that was tough on crime? Is she the last of that era or in some of the things that she did, not, not charging that one uh, or not going for the death penalty with that one cop killer with trying to help um, with job training with kids who were arrested for minor crimes? Was she the beginning of a, of a kind of new era uh, of prosecutors? She's baby steps, maybe. Um, but is what are we trying to figure out in her background that would tell us what about what kind of president she would be? Yeah. So, I mean, I would love it if criminal justice reform became a litmus test for Democratic candidates. Not the only one, but an important one um, because it's an issue near to dear to my heart. And I think Democrats have a lot – from the 90s, but, you know, until very recently, too, that they should be thinking hard about and changing. And and I also think there's this bipartisan movement that, like, it's much safer now to be taking these stances. And I think Harris, this is her record since she comes out of law enforcement, but all the candidates should be asked these questions. And, you know, Joe Biden, who hasn't announced yet, but when you go back and look at the things he was saying about violent crime um, in the 90s and even more recently, it sounds much more uh, reactionary than Harris. So there's that sort of question of this test generally. And then there's Harris's record. And I think that um, she calling herself a progressive prosecutor is not accurate. Um, My sister, Laura, who ran an innocence project in California and has spent her career as a criminal defense lawyer, so watches these issues really closely, um, wrote a New York Times op-ed that's gotten a lot of deserved attention this week for a sort of bill of particulars about the, the reasons that Harris does not measure up to that standard as it's come to be defined. And what's interesting is to see that at least in a Democratic primary moment, get attention. Whereas when Harris ran for the Senate, it really didn't. Um, and and not because it wasn't out there. I mean, I wrote a profile of her in the Times Magazine that had a lot of these facts in it, but it just didn't seem like a political liability for her. And so I think she hasn't sufficiently grappled with it. If you're really trying to go back and understand her record and answer the question you were asking, like, is she the sort of old guard bad prosecutor or is she like the baby steps toward a progressive prosecutor? You have to start with that decision not to charge the death penalty in San Francisco in 2004 that you brought up, John. So Harris had only been in DA for three months. She'd campaigned against the death penalty, which you kind of have to do in San Francisco. So then this terrible killing happens. She made this announcement even before the funeral of the police officer who'd been killed. At the funeral, Dianne Feinstein stood up and said something in favor of a death penalty prosecution. And there was this huge wave of applause from the police, which was a total rejection of Harris. And they never forgave her for that. I mean, when I called them in 2016, they just really, really opposed her. And so one way you can think about her law enforcement career was that she was trying to pull – she she did some – decently, like, reformist things as DA. But she was trying to get law enforcement support. And then when she ran for attorney general in 2010, she had none of that support. And she barely won that election. 
So then she becomes attorney general and she is, you know, probably thinking about running for Senate um, and also trying to manage this huge law enforcement agency. And she definitely did things as AG that were designed to reassure the cops around the state. And so when I was calling them in 2016, they were like, yeah, we feel better about her. Um, And then, you know, I think if you are a criminal justice former, perhaps the most disappointing thing about her was that she did not back sentencing reform ballot initiatives in California that passed. And her kind of excuses for that, she said, well, I'm writing the the language for the ballot initiatives as attorney general, so I can't take a position. Like, that didn't make any sense. When I called previous AGs in California, they were like, that's baloney. So on these big policy issues, she was not a reformer. And um, I don't think she has really fully explained why she took those positions. And then there are these other things in her office, like, for example, um, defending cases of serious prosecutorial misconduct. Now, that's like a normal thing. You're, you know, the the attorney general in California has the job of defending convictions on appeal. And they usually just like stick with the convictions. But she could have changed that. She could have taken a different stance, made it a priority to look into those cases, and she didn't. So, you know, case by case, like if you're on the left, that stuff doesn't look very good. And I don't know how important it is um, in terms of the national election because like – As you said, being a prosecutor has been a strength in the past. And if she got out of the primary, it might reassure um, more independent or Republican voters about her. And now I realize I've been talking forever. (laughs) Had a lot of thoughts. Last thing on Harris before we talk briefly about Gillibrand and and maybe uh, Buttigieg. She has one public policy idea, big public policy idea um, that she's touting which is a something called she calls the LIFT Act, which is a huge tax credit for workers, up to $3,000 a person. It would really benefit low- and middle-income people, get, though it would not help people whose incomes are over $100,000. And it also seems to penalize marriage, weirdly, and it would be hugely costly. So there are lots, to, lots of things to like about it because it, you know, it would be redistributing money from the rich to working poor and, and uh, middle-income people. You know, has no chance in hell of passing. Given that it has no chance in hell of passing, and it's also not that it doesn't really fire the imagination. So I read an article by Jordan Weissman of Slate about Harris's big policy idea, the Lift Act, as we were preparing for the show, made the point that so Sanders's ideas about economic policy are are really quite um, radical in comparison to others, but they have a they have a grandeur to them. It's like universal. You know, you were going to pay for your college education. It's healthcare for all. It's it's there's a there's an ambition and a clarity and a grandeur. Has Harris made a mistake, John? Do you think in picking something which is a pretty decent public policy idea has elements that that would certainly be helpful in in terms of reducing inequality, but has no chance to succeed and also isn't imaginative. Well, that it's that's kind of where I was going because. It, it's kind of like the wall. So what, what, what President Trump did with by talking about the wall and making these claims about Mexico as a candidate was his, his supporters, when I would ask them, they didn't really care if Mexico was going to pay for the wall. In the theater around the wall and in the theater around the, the build the wall chant and all of that, Trump was sending signals about his – that he was basically more – uh, you know, nationalist than thou, that he was sending a signal to those voters, whatever the details are, you can trust me as the guy who's going to be in there swinging on this on this issue. 
So how does that how does that work and play in in democratic politics? And that's why I was wondering about uh, Kamala Harris's her record and also her framing of herself as a person who is uh, working hard to um, establish equality and justice in 2020. Is that about sending that kind of a signal, which is like, which is I am obsessed with these issues and whatever the particulars are, you can tell from the way I uh, talk about this and from the just the way I cast this whole issue that whatever I may face, I will be the one in there who is most attuned to um, the disparities of equality and justice. Um, my guess is that her ability to seize the imagination probably is more uh, associated with her work uh, on criminal justice. What about her background, John? Like, I mean, that's obviously something that Barack Obama used to great effect. And, you know, so Harris has this interesting, she's the child of immigrants. Her dad was from Jamaica. He's an economist. Her mom's from India and became a professor at Berkeley working on health policy. And her parents split up when they were little. So she and her sister were, the mom raised them in um, a black neighborhood in Berkeley that at the time was like a working class neighborhood. She talks a lot about wanting to help folks like the folks I grew up with. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of, you know, black version of Elizabeth Warren's background, maybe a sort of similar sense that you're coming from this different, these different kind Mm -hmm. of roots. Um, And I I, wonder if that's something she can use to greater effect. I have this weird premonition, and I'm probably wrong because I'm wrong about almost everything, that this the, the biogra- biography is going to be very unimportant in this coming hmm. election. That it's not – it's it's going to be really about Trump and it's going to be about who is making an effective case, the most effective case against Trump and that the biography of the person – you know, obviously biography will will show in some ways and people will listen a little bit and if you're, you know – you know, I think Michael Bloomberg would have a harder time winning the Democratic nomination, probably. Hallelujah. But, uh, I don't think it is going to be dispositive in the way that it people have felt a little bit that it has been in the past. I wonder – that may be true. But one thing I was – I've been thinking about is if you read um, Identity Crisis, um, the John Sides, Lynn Vavrick, and Michael um, Tester's book about 2016 and the way in which Donald Trump turned – white identity into a powerful force in his in his constituency basically took people who who held some views but then really focused them in on it and turned the election into those things and so that he could appeal to a sense of white identity if that is his route again then the reaction to that can be it would it would seem to me to be an identity based politics um, of which there's already obviously some uh, considerably in the Democratic Party and therefore that could contradict what you're uh, what you're arguing David it's just all very too early to know just a word or two on Gillibrand and Buttigieg I don't understand Emily why Gillibrand is in the second rank of potential candidates she seems smart she seems tough she's from a big state. Well, she is way down in like these. I mean, I don't even know if poll is the right. She's way down in the betting markets. How about that? <laughs> oh, you, <laughs> you look went, at the you betting from... markets. <laughs> <laughs> don't the betting markets, John, actually like play out over time? Isn't that like a decent uh, measure to I, use? I, I don't think. I don't think so. I don't think. I think the betting no. markets end up being. I think the analysis of the betting markets is basically they end up where things end up because they end up moving towards where the polls end up taking things. Um, but early in other on, words, I don't think a be- I don't think a betting market right now is going to predict what's going to happen in uh, you know the Iowa caucuses. 
Yeah, fair enough. The day, well, I guess the, the day before things- the Iowa caucuses, the day before then. the Iowa caucuses, the betting market might be kind of right. Right. I mean, I'm interested in what John thinks about Gillibrand. You know, the yeah, I'm not. I think I won't even just like repeat the usual knock on her because I don't know how valid it is. But one thing that seems to be in favor of, I guess, Harris and also might help Cory Booker if he gets in the race is the primary schedule has changed. So California is early on. I think like early voting in the Democratic primaries in California is like going to be one of the first things or right in the first tier of things with Iowa. And then there also are going to be primaries in three southern states, right? Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama. And those are places where black voters um, in Democratic primaries that are that exist in great numbers. And so the emphasis in the past of, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, um, these heavily white states is going to be lower. So, you know, if you're just looking at the sort of racial composition of the electorate and you imagine that a black candidate could have some appeal, um, then that would favor Harris over, you know, another female senator like Gillibrand. Which is a better rebuttal to David's identity argument, or which is also a good rebuttal, I should say, to David's identity argument. Um, right. Can I say one more thing about Harris's identity? I know I've been talking too much, but, you know, I, it's the criticism of Harris as a prosecutor is super interesting to me. I also think, and I don't know whether this cuts in favor of her or against, but you can make an argument that the compromises she made that criminal justice reformers don't like were necessary for her to win statewide office, especially because she was running as a black woman. So when she was elected attorney general in California, she was one of two black women in the country who were elected statewide. And when I was doing interviews for that profile a couple of years ago, one of the people I called was Stacey Abrams. At that point, she hadn't run for governor. And she said... You know, Democratic donors do not think black candidates can win statewide. And if you look at black politicians who are important, you see members of Congress and mayors, people who come from urban strongholds. And so for Stacey Abrams at that point, like Kamala Harris was incredibly important in creating a path for other African-American and I think Latino candidates to, to show donors that they had what it took to win statewide. So that's just like another, you know, Another thing to keep in mind in assessing Harris and um, the compromises she's made. Can I just uh, – I think that's – what's really interesting in that case is that you then are measuring Harris in her record on the kind of purity scale. Was she sufficiently attentive to these issues she's trying to sell herself as the candidate of? That's one scale. And the other is does she have the nimbleness and the understanding of the political landscape to make the necessary compromises, to push as far as is possible but recognize the constraints of the reality, which is it's hard for an African-American to get elected statewide? And which of those two things is more important when you go to be a president in a system of shared powers and high partisanship? That is a great way to end. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I wonder if this is what the Black Death was like. People wandering around with donkeys, crying, bring out your dead, and painting crosses on walls, which was, I guess, like a medieval Twitter. Hashtag all hope is lost. 
Everyone I know is either a Brexit denier. It's not happening, they say. We'll have a people's vote. Another referendum. We'll win this time. Or a Brexit apocalypticist. It's happening. We're doomed. Hold my hand and run toward the blast. Tanya Gold, who's a contributing editor at Harper's, wrote that two months ago in the New York Times about Brexit. It's even worse today, I think. So Tanya joins us from Cornwall to talk about Brexit and what it's like to be living in the UK as as the apocalypse approaches. Uh, welcome, Tanya. Hello. So is it even worse today than it was when you wrote that a, a month or so ago? Well, I think it's I think today we are 63 days away from by law crashing out of the European Union. Our political system is completely paralyzed at the moment. Uh, Parliament is doing nothing except Brexit and and trying to get rid of the Prime Minister Theresa May and failing to get rid of her. Uh, and uh, this entire nation is living in a, in a state of, of fear uh, and, and uncertainty. People are, are stockpiling food. Uh, I was in my local supermarket the other day and I, I had a sort of um, attack of terror and, and, and was saying to my friend, we, we need to get olive oil, we, we need to get lemons. Because uh, after, after Brexit Day on the 29th of March, we're, we're just going to be living in the, in the 15th century as, as regards cuisine. Just cows. Uh, no Italian foodstuffs whatsoever. No French, no French cheese. No wine. Nothing. Yeah. And if the British had better native cuisine, maybe that would be less terrifying, right? That's true. It's it's all about the pies. It's all about the pies here. So, so yes, I mean, we're terrified. And, and actually... Um, there is so much terror that there's a new thing over here called sort of Brexit fatigue because our newspapers are just full of Brexit. And of course, nobody actually knows what's going to happen. Nobody has ever attempted anything like this before. No one's attempted to leave the European Union before. And because we don't know what's going to happen, we're getting bored. We're getting bored already. And, and from this boredom is, is, is coming this idea that, that we should just go. We should just go now. Enough of listening to talk about Brexit. And it's quite interesting, actually, because it, it seems sort of curiously sort of dramatic and, and self-loathing. Um, I've already said decline, always said decline is my favorite, my favorite age of empire. But there's something incredibly decadent, I feel, about this, about this desire to just leap out of, of a union, which whatever it is or isn't, has kept us safe and prosperous uh, for 60 years. But we're jumping out with both feet. And that's the so-called blind Brexit? A no-deal Brexit. Well, Theresa May has, has tried to get a withdrawal deal, the so-called soft Brexit, in that we keep elements of our union through Parliament, but she's failed. Uh, she had uh, last week the worst defeat that a prime minister ha- has had in, in living memory. So unless something changes and, and next week she's going to come back and she's changing the deal slightly and smoothing it at the edges, trying to get it through Parliament. But if it doesn't get through Parliament... Uh, we're going to leave. We are going to leave on, on March the 29th because that's that's the law. So what do you think about this idea of having another vote? I mean, I was reading about it last night and there are a couple choices. So one is whether you just like redo the leave remain vote, two choices, um, just have a do over because there are such paralysis. And then another choice would be to have a three-way choice between um, May's deal, the hard-out Brexit you were describing, and staying in the European Union. Are either of those viable options? Um, What do you think about that? Well, um, the people who we call the Remainers, it's Brexiteers versus Remainers. Uh, Remainers really want to have a second referendum. They're they're completely obsessed with it. My own view on a second referendum is though it might be a relief to stay in the European Union, we have voted. 
we voted and 52% of the people who voted wanted to get out. And I, I sort of think, though I'm not a Brexiteer myself, that if, if, if we ignore the results of this referendum, there's really very little point in having another general election or any kind of election uh, ever. The, the people have spoken, the bastards, as, as I think um, uh, Winston Churchill said. Uh, the problem with the second referendum is that for it to get through Parliament, it would have to have the support of uh, the ever-changing and strange leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has been very closed on Brexit. He was supposed to campaign against it, but people complained that he was never there campaigning. And, and, and way back at the beginning of his political career, he didn't, he didn't like the EU. He thinks it's a sort of monolith of capital. So he is not supporting a second referendum. So we think that's off the table. We're very excited about a second referendum for a bit. Uh, but now that seems to have gone. Uh, I know that the um, that the Remainers were very excited about the idea of a second referendum because they think they'll win it because they think that loads of the people who voted for Brexit was are so old. And that's why they're so mean uh, that they've died now. <laughs> Really? Is that just enough people died off in the last two years? So, That's like all it's going to well, take. And there have been a million and there are a million and a half new voters who are all young. Yeah. And Well, that, w- and so that they- was a great error by by the Conservative government who had the referendum and they, and they wanted us to stay in the EU. I mean, I was there actually the day that they decided they weren't going to let 16 and 17 year olds vote in the referendum, or, which was a huge mistake. I mean, it, it wouldn't have actually swung the vote, but it would have meant there was a bigger turnout for staying in the EU. But yes, people do think that um, that old, mean, racist people uh, who voted for Brexit are, are now dead. So if we did have this second referendum, which I don't think is going to happen, uh, then they couldn't vote because they're dead. One of the things that, that as somebody who, who has long admired the UK and has been obsessed with its history is you've had an, an amazing elite leadership class and, and you know, it's it's had it's had mixed results around the world, but it's been a it's been an elite that's been very committed to to leading and to, to sort of guiding the people, and there's great pride in it. The failure of elite politicians, the failure of the elite to a not have this vote to begin with, b not have a solution to to remedy it once the vote was taken, c to not know what to do with the the populist and nativist and sometimes racist fury that's arisen, seems to me like a forgetting the the catastrophe that is the economic catastrophe that will happen to the country but the the loss of of a credible leadership class is devastating we have the same thing going on in the united states incidentally i'm not like saying you're unique in that way well, no, thank, thank you. And, and actually, Brexit is increasingly feeling like the culture wars, the culture wars in America, and, and people are, are are identifying more with whether they're Brexit or Remain than any political party. But I mean, I think the answer to your question, it really is the question of the age, is that there is just a, a vast cohort of people in this country, you know, who feel like they've been forgotten. I mean, a, a quotation, an idea that I always rely upon in times like this is that unequal societies are always terribly unstable societies. And in the last 20 years, we seem to have moved away from sort of the peaceful post-war settlement in Western Europe. And the rich in this country are getting rich beyond their wildest dreams and, and the poor are getting poorer and poorer. And, and those are the people who came out for, for, for Brexit. They were people who had never voted before. The benefits of globalization didn't, didn't happen for them. They feel like they have been forgotten. And we do have an elite leadership in in this country and they go to grand public schools and they go to grand universities. And and David Cameron was absolutely one of those. And I think it it was his 
it was his arrogance and his belief uh, from childhood that he was always right and that he would be a very good prime minister and his decisions would be the, the best decisions. But he, he forgot about these people. And, and, and the Labour Party, who is supposed to represent these people, has also, also forgotten about these people. And as in America, you know, support is draining away from, from the centrist parties. And it's gone to UKIP, uh, the UK Independence Party, which always wanted us to leave Europe and has had such, such great success. And there you have it. Exactly the same as in America. So the way you describe it, it seems sort of, you know, tragic in the sense that the welling up, the sense of being forgotten should be something that politicians could figure out to how to address without, like, destroying the economy of the country, without this demonizing of being part of Europe, right? And yet, the, obviously, like, that didn't happen. And you know, you could draw a parallel to the way populism has played out politically in the United States with Donald Trump. But it it just makes me listening to it. It just seems like the Labor Party should have figured out some way to speak to those people that would have addressed their completely legitimate economic anxieties. Oh, well, the Labour Party in this country is, has gone has gone very far to the left. And, and, and for me, that's a problem. It won't be a problem for all your listeners. I don't think that this is a socialist country. I mean, they have a they have a, a socialist manifesto. That is what they want. This is not a socialist country. This is constitutional monarchy. You know, 14 million people in this country watch Downton Abbey. <laughs> people are fighting all the time and people are, are shouting at each other, just like in America. And no one knows who's right or, or who's wrong. But uh, I don't think that a socialist uh, Labour Party is is going to win uh, a general election in this country. And, and, and actually, a point I should have made before, I think what Jeremy Corbyn actually wants, although he sort of mouths about wanting a soft Brexit, and he pretended, as I said, to campaign uh, for Remain, what he wants is a hard Brexit. He wants a hard, devastating Brexit. And after that, he wants a, gen- a general election, which he might win. You ask me the question, why don't politicians represent these people, don't represent these people? Because they don't walk in their shoes. I mean, there is a huge problem in this country of the kind of people who go into politics. You know, in the 1960s uh, and before, Labour politicians were working men. They'd come up through the unions. They'd worked on factory uh, shop floors. Now they're all they're all spads and they're they're technocrats and the voting public looks at them and they they do not see recognition they do not see people uh, who act for them i think the saddest thing about brexit you know as you alluded to is that people who are voting brexit think that they are voting for an idealized past i mentioned downton abbey in this country we we are huge on self-mythology and and we remember the good side of having an empire of course we had the best of empire it was the people that we so uh, grotesquely colonized who had the worst of it but we look back to those times when britain was a powerful and respected country and lands we governed were covered a fifth of the globe and we think and we're wrong that if we leave evil nasty europe we can get some of that back and of course we can't and we never deserved it in the first place tanya in the in the states when there have been um uh cries about desperate things that might upend the way we live um things like the 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 worry about the um y2k computer bug and then nothing happened um uh, does anybody have that feeling who says, you know, well, if there's a blind Brexit or a hard Brexit or any of these outcomes that would basically take uh, the UK out of the EU without any governing rules for how the interactions in trade and the economy would work, that it's kind of overblown, that everybody will kind of muddle through, uh, but that these these uh, dire claims are, are, are not going to come to happen? Well, I'm married to a lever. 
you know, I can say that quite safely to an American audience, an American liberal audience who aren't going to come around and, 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 and beat him up. And I agree with you. I don't think it's going to be quite as bad as people say it is just because it can't possibly be as bad as people say it is. I mean, my husband has heart medication. I've already checked that it's actually manufactured in Birkenstead in this country, and thank God for that. But people here are summoning such apocalyptic fantasies of everyone talks about 30 miles of tailbacks for the lorries at Dover. Because, of course, we're going to have customs checks and there's not going to be medicines and there's going to be, you know, people dying in the streets. Well, there are already people dying in the streets. And I mean, one of the terrible things uh, about this this obsession and paralysis with Brexit is how uh, the austerity, which is, was this government's policy, you know, is affecting other other people's lives. But to uh, and terribly. But but to get back to my main point, I'm seeing a glimmer of hope, possibly because I have no choice. I mean, Germany is entering a technical recession. Many countries in Europe are are showing vast surges towards populist leaders and, and towards nationalist politics. I mean, the European Union was born to prevent mass war. You know, if you're being really cynical, you would say we never found a better way of of containing Germany. But I do wonder if things get as bad as they look to be getting with the fragmentation of politics and um, the rise of nationalism and anti-Semitism and racism and everything goes along with that, you know, maybe it's possible we will be better off on our own. I think initially it's going to be terrifying, but we might pick ourselves up. But as I said, no one actually knows what's going to happen. No one. And anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen is a fantasist. What, What about the leaders of this Brexit movement? Like, where are they coming from in all of this? Um, well, uh, the leaders of the Brexit movement in in Britain are Boris Johnson, who you may have heard of, the you know formerly sexy blonde Cicerone Churchill quoting uh, former journalist, an immensely charismatic man, and and people think that his coming out for Brexit possibly swung the result. There's also Jacob Rees-Mogg, and all you really need to know about him is that he went to Margaret Thatcher's funeral in a top hat. So between them, these men summon this ghostly England of glory that will come if only we can leave the horrid EU. And I think of all the things that have happened, the thing I found most terrifying was this week, Jacob Rees-Mogg said that he was worried that Parliament was going to stop us leaving, leaving the EU. And so he wanted the Queen to to ask Parliament to go away. Uh, so they couldn't do this. And and I think for a man whose who's, who's mantra, the mantra of his, of his campaign was take back control, take back sovereignty from Brussels, it's absolutely terrifying. And I think it gives you an idea of how mad these people are. So pray for us, please. Tanya Gold is a contributing editor at Harper's. She's in Cornwall. You should, uh, maybe you can telegraph her in a few months or you can maybe send by steamship you might be able to send something to her that they can they'll send a dinghy up to the cornwall coast and and throw your message to her send me a pigeon or you can eat at a pigeon that she can eat yes i'll eat the pigeon thank you good luck tanya thank you very much goodbye hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are sitting 
imagine yourself as a Brexiteer. All you have left to drink is the mead, the mead that you've able been able to create from the the honey on your your estate in Cornwall. There's no wine left to have, no imported vodka, just mead. What are you going to be chattering about, Emily? I am reading such a fun, gripping book right now. It's this new book. I think it's coming out certainly by the end of the month, um, which I guess is nigh upon us. It's by Evan Ratliff. It's called The Mastermind. Drugs, empire, murder, betrayal. Um, And it's just this like incredibly well-reported and also like well-told thriller, really, um, about this mastermind guy, Paul Calder LaRue, who's this like computer programmer who creates this amazing um, drug selling organization internationally. It's like a sort of digital um, version of organized crime. And Evan just takes you through all of the different like levels, how this guy escaped capture by, you know, every single law enforcement agency in the world for many years. Um, If you like those kinds of, you know, almost like film noir detective um, stories, this is like an amazing nonfiction version of it. That sounds amazing. I think you would totally like it, David. That does sound like Mm -hmm. I love Evan. He's great. He's the founder of The Atavist. Uh, John, what's your chatter? My chatter is is about I mean it's a little it's well it's self-referential which I apologize for but I'm we have this in covering the president Trump and what he said during the campaign and what he said in the past during the front you always have to kind of remember the time that he said them I was thinking about this in terms of the Russia deal because we know that president Trump when he was campaigning knew that news of a Russia a deal ongoing deal with Russia was a bad idea and that he couldn't say it out loud because he didn't because there's some conversation uh, from his team saying like oh he didn't you know he didn't think this was that big a deal he obviously thought it was a big enough deal not to talk about it um, politically I mean so in that context I was reminded this new book by Cliff Sims uh, called um, team of Vipers about the um, about the Trump White House which is it has some lively writing but also has some extraordinary exchanges um, and one of them related to something that um, when I interviewed the president on the 100th day and I said, you know, well, the jobs – you've said the job's harder than you thought. What made it harder? And he said the thing that's harder is the press. And I said, surely you can't have thought the press was going to be – you know, you already have been complaining about the press. So that couldn't have surprised you about the job. And he said, well, I didn't realize how how dishonest they would be. And his example number one was the coverage of his change in position on currency manipulation with China. Now – this might put people to sleep, but he had just – he had called China – said he was going to declare China a currency manipulator on his first day in office. He talked about that a lot during the campaign. Then he didn't, and what all the coverage said was the reason he didn't is because China wasn't a currency manipulator, and he'd been saying something that was not true during the campaign. I went around and around with him uh, some uh, considerable amount during our interview on this. It's in the, in the It was the period where he called us to face the nation. Um, Anyway, he insisted that uh, no. He, he, he That's in- a pretty good nickname. He insisted. Falling right for it, David Plotz. Yes, David Plotz. I mean, David don't really like. I don't really like his nickname. So I hadn't heard and that yet, before. Yeah, when it's anyway, John's sorry. old show, yes. you cackle yeah. away over there. I know. So instead of doing what buckling the way David just did, I went on this kind of round and around with him on China currency manipulation because he was saying, "Well, I I, I didn't declare them one because the facts had changed," and I said. No, everybody had said before when you were campaigning that they weren't currency manipulators. You've just 
you've just bent to the reality. Okay, Cliff Sims's book comes out, and one of the early scenes is the president reacting uh, with shock when his treasury secretary comes in early in the administration. I think it's actually their very first meeting with, with the treasury department. And they say, China's not manipulating its currency. And the president says, really? And then uh, they show him a report that says they're not manipulating the currency. And then he would, you know, ultimately go and change his art. So you now have an insider account saying exactly what everybody knew to be the case, which is nothing had changed. It's just he, once he became president, was faced with the reality by his Treasury Department in their very first meeting. And yet this was the thing that he held up as the great example of the press being unfair to him when the press just clearly stated what was the case, which was that China had not met the criteria to be considered a currency manipulator for some time and that his boast that he was going to declare them one on day one had no teeth because they hadn't met the criteria necessary. My chatter is a brief one. Uh, Kotki.org, my beloved Kotki.org, a wonderful website, uh, pointed its readers to a really fascinating series of photographs this week. They're by an artist named Annie Wong. Uh, I think she's Taiwanese. Most of her website is in Chinese, but from what I can discern, I think she's Taiwanese. Um, And what she has done over the past 18 years is that periodically she will take a picture with her her son. She started by taking a picture of herself pregnant the day before her son was due. Um, A a big portrait with various objects around in the back. And then the next time she takes a the photograph, she'll take it with the previous photograph in the background and so on and so on and so on. And so it's like a a kind of endlessly recursive mirror or endlessly recursive scene where you're looking deeper and deeper and deeper and behind each piece is this earlier photograph, earlier photograph, earlier photograph uh, as this boy grows up, as she changes. And they're totally mesmerizing. It's, it's, it's really as a photographic series, it's really stunning as a portrait of time and, and change. So I really recommend looking at Annie Wong's photos, which Kotki.org links to. And then, of course, dear ones, we have a listener chatter. You have been tweeting them to us at @slategabfest, posting them on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash gabfest, uh, where you, the thing that you would want to chatter about. And this week, there are really a bunch of really good ones. But the one that caught my eye was from Leah McFarlane at at Rafi. And Leah McFarlane points us to the book Wilding by Isabella Tree. And it's a story of what happened at a British estate, the Nepp estate, a 3,500-acre estate in, in Sussex in England, where the owners of the property realized they just couldn't – the agriculture wasn't a go, wouldn't work anymore. And they just let their land become wild. And what happened when their land became wild is that all these animals, including endangered species – including, you know, flora and fauna that weren't really seen much in this part of the country, suddenly came back. And it just took a decade. It was really very little time. And so it's a, it, was a, it sounds like it's a quite inspiring book about how wilderness can, can be restored, that we're, not, that we're not doomed to never having wilderness again. So check out Wilding. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is, of course, Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. You should follow us on Twitter at Slate Gap Fest and tweet chatter at us. And you should come to our shows on March 27th in D.C. or April 11th in Charlottesville. Slate.com slash live for tickets to those shows. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. 
Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Irma is now the strongest hurricane to ever plow into the Leeward Islands. Yesterday, we mentioned only Hurricane Allen. In 1994, the Northridge earthquake struck, killing scores, taking down bridges, buildings, a more than $40 billion price tag. Get the very latest on that major earthquake in Anchorage, Alaska. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina killed more than 1,800 people, a disaster that we still haven't totally recovered from, with a price tag of 161 billion dollars. They haven't had a single government worker since Hurricane Maria devastated the island. Fire ravaging Northern California. 27,000 residents have evacuated and thousands more left without. Whether you like it or not, a big one is coming. A quake that will change Los Angeles as we know it. It could kill hundreds and cost hundreds of billions of dollars to recover from. And we're not ready. We're better prepared for the big one than any big city in America, which is to say we're woefully unprepared. Want to know what to expect? Want to be ready? Listen to The Big One, your survival guide. Available now wherever you like to listen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.